section twenty eight of a history of our own times volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter twelve the repeal year part two a great english statesman in our own day once said that parliament had done many just things but few things because they were just o'connell and the irish people saw that catholic emancipation had been yielded to pressure rather than to justice it is not wonderful if they thought that pressure might prevail as well in the matter of repeal in many respects o'connell differed from more modern irish nationalists he was a thorough liberal he was a devoted opponent of negro slavery he was a staunch free trader he was a friend of popular education he was an enemy to all excess he was opposed to strikes he was an advocate of religious equality everywhere and he declined to receive the commands of the vatican in his political agitation i am a catholic but i am not a papist was his own definition of his religious attitude he preached the doctrine of constitutional agitation strictly and declared that no political reform was worth the shedding of one drop of blood it may be asked how it came about that with all these excellent attributes which all critics now allow to him o'connell was so detested by the vast majority of the english people one reason undoubtedly is that o'connell deliberately revived and worked up for his political purposes the almost extinct national hatreds of celt and saxon as a phrase of political controversy he may be said to have invented the word saxon he gave a terrible license to his tongue his abuse was outrageous his praise was outrageous the very effusiveness of his loyalty told to his disadvantage people could not understand how one who perpetually denounced the saxon could be so enthusiastic and rapturous in his professions of loyalty to the saxon's queen in the common opinion of englishmen all the evils of ireland all the troubles attaching to the connection between the two countries had arisen from this unmitigated rankling hatred of celt for saxon it was impossible for them to believe that a man who deliberately applied all the force of his eloquence to revive it could be a genuine patriot it appeared intolerable that while thus labouring to make the celt hate the saxon he could yet profess an extravagant devotion to the sovereign of england yet o'connell was probably quite sincere in his professions of loyalty he was in no sense a revolutionist he had from his education in a french college acquired an early detestation of the principles of the french revolution of the irish rebels of ninety eight he spoke with as savage an intolerance as the narrowest english tories could show in speaking of himself the tones and emmets and fitzgeralds whom so many of the irish people adored were in o'connell's eyes and in his words only a gang of miscreants he grew angry at the slightest expression of an opinion among his followers that seemed to denote even a willingness to discuss any of the doctrines of communism his theory and his policy evidently were that ireland was to be saved by a dictatorship entrusted to himself with the irish priesthood acting as his officers and agents he maintained the authority of the priests and his own authority by means of them and over them 
the political system of the country for the purposes of agitation was to be a sort of hierarchy the parish priests occupying the lowest grade the bishops standing on the higher steps and o'connell himself supreme as the pontiff over all he had a parliamentary system by means of which he proposed to approach more directly the question of repeal of the union he got seats in the house of commons for a number of his sons his nephews and his sworn retainers o'connell's tail was the precursor of the pope's brass band in the slang of the house of commons he had an almost supreme control over the irish constituencies and whenever a vacancy took place he sent down the repeal candidate to contest it he always inculcated and insisted on the necessity of order and peace indeed as he proposed to carry on his agitation altogether by the help of the bishops and the priests it is not possible for him even were he so inclined to conduct it on any other than peaceful principles the man who commits a crime gives strength to the enemy was a maxim which he was never weary of impressing upon his followers the temperance movement set on foot with such remarkable and sudden success by father matthew was at once turned to account by o'connell he was himself in his later years at all events a very temperate man and he was delighted at the prospect of good order and discipline which the temperance movement afforded father matthew was very far from sharing all the political opinions of o'connell the sweet and simple friar whose power was that of goodness and enthusiasm only and who had but little force of character or intellect shrank from political agitation and was rather conservative than otherwise in his views but he could not afford to repudiate the support of o'connell who on all occasions glorified the temperance movement and called upon his followers to join it and was always boasting of his noble army of teetotalers it was probably when he found that the mere fact of his having supported the melbourne government did so much to discredit that government in the eyes of englishmen and to bring about its fall that o'connell went deliberately out of the path of mere parliamentary agitation and started that system of agitation by monster meeting which has since his time been regularly established among us as a principal part of all political organization for a definite purpose he founded in dublin a repeal association which met in a place on burkey and which he styled conciliation hall around him in this association he gathered his sons his relatives his devoted followers priestly and lay the nation newspaper then in its youth and full of a fresh literary vigour was one of his most brilliant instruments at a later period of the agitation it was destined to be used against him and with severe effect the famous monster meetings were usually held on a sunday on some open spot mostly selected for its historic fame and with all the picturesque surroundings of hill and stream from the dawn of the summer day the repealers were thronging to the scene of the meeting they came from all parts of the neighbouring country for miles and miles they were commonly marshalled and guided by their parish priests they all attended the services of their church before the meeting began the influence of his religion and of his patriotic feelings was brought to bear at once upon the impressionable and emotional irish celt at the meeting o'connell and several of his chosen orators addressed the crowd on the subject of the wrongs done to ireland by the saxon 
the claims of ireland to the restoration of her old parliament and college green and the certainty of her having it restored if irishmen only obeyed o'connell and their priests were sober and displayed their strength and their unity o'connell himself it is needless to say was always the great orator of the day the agitation developed a great deal of literary talent among the younger men of education but it never brought out a man who was even spoken of as a possible successor to o'connell in eloquence his magnificent voice enabled him to do what no genius or no eloquence less aptly endowed could have done he could send his lightest word thrilling to the extreme of the vast concourse of people whom he desired to move he swayed them with the magic of an absolute control he understood all the moods of his people to address himself to them came naturally to him he made them roar with laughter he made them weep he made them thrill with indignation as the shadow runs over a field so the impression of his varying eloquence ran over the assemblage he commanded the emotions of his hearers as a consummate conductor sways the energies of his orchestra every allusion told when in one of his meetings held in his native carry he turned solemnly round and appealed to yonder blue mountains where you and i were cradled or in sight of the objects he described he apostrophized ireland as the land of the green valley and the rushing river an admirably characteristic and complete description or recalled some historical association connected with the scene he surveyed each was some special appeal to the instant feelings of his peculiar audience sometimes he indulged in the grossest and what ought to have been the most ridiculous flattery of his hearers flattery which would have offended and disgusted the dullest english audience but the irish peasant with all his keen sense of the ridiculous in others is singularly open to the influence of an appeal to his own vanity there is a great deal of the eternal womanly in the celtic nature and it is not easy to overflatter one of the race doubtless o'connell knew this and acted purposely on it and this was a peculiarity of his political conduct which it would be hard indeed to commend or even to defend but in truth he adopted in his agitation the tactics he had employed at the bar a good speech is a good thing he used to say but the verdict is the thing his flattery of his hearers was not grosser than his abuse of all those whom he did not like his dispraise often had absolutely no meaning in it there was no sense whatever in calling the duke of wellington a stunted corporal one might as well have called mont blanc a molehill nobody could have shown more clearly than o'connell did that he did not believe the times to be an obscure rag it would have been as humorous and as truthful to say that there was no such paper as the times but these absurdities made an ignorant audience laugh for the moment and o'connell had gained the only point he just then wanted to carry he would probably have answered any one who remonstrated with him on the disingenuousness of such sayings as mrs thrale says burke once answered her when she taxed him with a want of literary accuracy by quoting odd's life must one swear to the truth of a song but this recklessness of epithet and description did much to make o'connell distrusted and disliked in england where in whatever heat of political controversy 
words are supposed to be the expressions of some manner of genuine sentiment of course many of o'connell's abusive epithets were not only full of humour but did to some extent fairly represent the weaknesses at least of those against whom they were directed some of his historical allusions were of more mischievous nature than any mere personalities could have been peel and wellington he said at kilkenny may be second cromwell's they may get cromwell's blunted truncheon and they may o oh sacred heavens enact on the fair occupants of that gallery pointing to the ladies gallery the murder of the wexford women let it not be supposed that when i made that appeal to the ladies it was but a flight of my imagination no when cromwell entered the town of wexford by treachery three hundred ladies the beauty and loveliness of wexford the young and the old the maid and the matron were collected round the cross of christ they prayed to heaven for mercy and i hope they found it they prayed to the english for humanity and cromwell slaughtered them i tell you this three hundred women the grace and beauty and virtue of wexford were slaughtered by the english ruffians sacred heaven he went on then to assure his hearers that the ruffianly saxon paper the times in the number received by me to-day presumes to threaten us again with such a scene one would like to see the copy of the times which contained such a threat or indeed any words that could be tortured into a semblance of any such hideous meaning but the great agitator when he found that he had excited enough the horror of his audience proceeded to reassure them by the means of all others most objectionable and dangerous at such a time i am not imaginative he said when i talk of possibility of such scenes anew but yet i assert that there is no danger to our women now for the men of ireland would die to the last in their defence here the whole meeting broke into a storm of impassioned cheering i the orator exclaimed when the storm found a momentary hush we were a paltry remnant then we are millions now at mulamast o'connell made an impassioned allusion to the massacre of irish chieftains said to have taken place on that very spot in the reign of queen elizabeth three hundred and ninety irish chiefs perished here they came confiding in saxon honour relying on the protection of the queen to a friendly conference in the midst of revelry in the cheerful light of the banquet-house they were surrounded and butchered none returned save one their wives were widows their children fatherless in their homestead was heard the shrill shriek of despair the cry of bitter agony o oh, saxon cruelty how it cheers my heart to think that you dare not attempt such a deed again it is not necessary to point out what the effect of such descriptions and such allusions must have been upon an excitable and an ignorant peasant audience on men who were ready to believe in all sincerity that england only wanted the opportunity to re-enact in the reign of queen victoria the scenes of queen elizabeth's or cromwell's day the late lord lytton has given in his poem st stephen's a picturesque description of one of these meetings and of the effect produced upon himself by o'connell's eloquence once to my sight he says the giant thus was given walled by wide air and roofed by boundless heaven 
he describes the human ocean lying spread out at the giant's feet its wave on wave flowing into space away not unnaturally lord lytton thought no clarion could have sent its sound even to the centre of that crowd and as i thought rose the sonorous swell as from some church tower swings the silvery bell aloft and clear from airy tide to tide it glided easy as a bird may glide to the last verge of that vast audience sent it played with each wild passion as it went nor stirred the uproar now the murmur stilled and sobs and laughter answered as it willed then did i know what spells of infinite choice to rouse or lull has the sweet human voice then did i learn to seize the sudden clue to the grand troublous life antique to view under the rock-stand of demosthenes unstable athens heave her noisy seas End of section 28